Welcome to Flourish. I'm Diane Flanagan, and you're in the right place if you're ready to create an inspired life. And we do so by working on our own personal development. So we can be strong role models for those we love and mentor. We are on week seven, chapter 37 in our Psych 100 journey at Queen's University. We're on the road to freedom. So let's get started. Cognitive development in childhood. This one should be fascinating. This module examines what cognitive development is, major theories about how it occurs, the roles of nature and nurture, whether it is continuous or discontinuous, and how research in the area is being used to improve education. The learning objectives to keep in the back of your mind is to be able to identify and describe the main areas of cognitive development. Be able to describe major theories of cognitive development and what distinguishes them. Understand how nature and nurture work together to produce cognitive development. Understand why cognitive development is sometimes viewed as discontinuous and sometimes as continuous. And know some ways in which research on cognitive development is being used to improve education. As you know by now, I am a student and not a teacher. I'm sharing my learning journey with you as I research for my book. So let's get going. Introduction. By the time you reach adulthood, you have learned a few things about how the world works. You know, for instance, that you can't walk through walls or leap into the tops of trees. You know that although you cannot see your car keys, they've got to be around here someplace. What's more, you know that if you want to communicate complex ideas, like ordering a triple shot soy vanilla latte with chocolate sprinkles, <laughs> it's better to use words with meanings attached to them rather than simply gesturing and grunting. People accumulate all this useful knowledge through the process of cognitive development, which involves a multitude of factors, both inherent and learned. Cognitive development refers to the development of thinking across the lifespan. Defining thinking can be problematic because no clear boundaries separate thinking from other mental activities. Thinking obviously involves the higher mental processes. Problem solving, reasoning, creating, conceptualizing, categorizing, remembering, planning, and so on. However, thinking also involves other mental processes that seem more basic at which even toddlers are skilled, such as perceiving objects and events in the environment, acting skillfully on objects to obtain goals, and understanding and producing language. Yet other areas of human development that involve thinking are not usually associated with cognitive development, because thinking isn't a prominent feature of them such as personality and temperament. As the name suggests, cognitive development is about change. Children's thinking changes in dramatic and surprising ways. In 1969, uh, DeVries did a study of whether young children understand the difference between appearance and reality. To find out, she brought an, an unusually even-tempered cat named Maynard to a psychology laboratory and allowed the three to six-year-old participants in study to pet and play with him. DeVries then put a mask of a fierce dog on Maynard's head and asked the children what Maynard was. Despite all of the children having identified Maynard previously as a cat, now most three-year-olds said that he was a dog and claimed that he had a dog's bone and a dog's stomach. 
In contrast, the six-year-olds weren't fooled. They had no doubt that Maynard remained a cat. Understanding how children's thinking changes so dramatically in just a few years is one of the fascinating challenges in studying cognitive development. There are several main types of theories of child development. Stage theories, such as Piaget's stage theory, focus on whether children progress through qualitatively different stages of development. Sociocultural theories, such as that of Lev Vyatsky, emphasize how other people and the attitudes, values, and beliefs of the surrounding culture influence children's development. Information processing theories, such as that of David Clark, examine the mental processes that produce thinking at any one time and the transition processes that lead to growth in that thinking. At the heart of all these theories, and indeed of all the research on cognitive development, are two main questions. How do nature and nurture interact to produce cognitive development? And does cognitive development progress through qualitatively distinct stages? In the remainder of this module, we'll examine the answers that are emerging regarding these questions, as well as ways in which cognitive development research is being used to improve education. Nature and nurture. The most basic question about child development is how nature and nurture together shape development. Nature refers to our biological endowment, the genes we receive from our parents. Nurture refers to the environments, social as well as physical, that influence our development. Everything from the womb in which we develop before birth to the homes in which we grow up in, the schools we attend, and the many people with whom we interact. The nature-nurture issue is often presented as an either-or question. Is our intelligence, for example, due to our genes or to the environment in which we live? In fact, however, every aspect of development is produced by the interaction of genes and environment. At the most basic level, without genes, there would be no child, and without an environment to provide nurture, there would also be no child. The way in which nature and nurture work together can be seen in findings on visual development. Many people view vision as something that people either are born with or that is purely a matter of biological maturation, but it also depends on the right kind of experience at the right time. For example, development of depth perception, the ability to actively perceive distance from oneself to objects in the environment depends on seeing pattern light and having normal brain activity in response to the pattern light in infancy. If no pattern light is received, for example, when a baby has severe cataracts or blindness that is not surgically corrected until later in development, depth perception remains abnormal even after the surgery. Adding to the complexity of the nature-nurture interaction, Children's genes lead to their eliciting different treatment from other people, which influences their cognitive development. For example, infants' physical attractiveness and temperament are influenced considerably by their genetic inheritance. But it is also the case that parents provide more sensitive and affectionate care to easygoing and attractive infants than to difficult and less attractive ones, which can contribute to the infant's later cognitive development 
Oh, boy, that's fascinating. Also contributing to the complex interplay of nature and nurture is the role of children in shaping their own cognitive development. From the first day out of the womb, children actively choose to attend more to some things and less to others. For example, even one-month-olds choose to look at their mother's face more than at the faces of other women of the same age and general level of attractiveness. Children's contributions to their own cognitive development grow larger as they grow older. When children are young, their parents largely determine their experiences. Whether they attend daycare, the children with whom they will have playdates, the books to which they have access, and so on. In contrast, older children and adolescents choose their environments to a larger degree. Their parents' preferences largely determine how five-year-olds spend time, but 15-year-olds' own preferences largely determine when, if ever, they set foot in a library. Children's choices often have large consequences. To cite one example, the more that children choose to read, the more that their reading improves in future years. Thus, the issue is not whether cognitive development is a product of nature or nurture, rather the issue is how nature and nurture work together to produce cognitive development. Does cognitive development progress through distinct stages? Some aspects of the development of living organisms, such as the growth of the width of a pine tree, involve quantitative changes, with the tree getting a little wider each year. Other changes, such as the life cycle of a ladybug, involve qualitative changes, with the creature becoming a totally different type of entity after transition than before. The existence of both gradual quantitative changes and the relative sudden qualitative changes in the world has led researchers who study cognitive development to ask whether changes in children's thinking are gradual and continuous or sudden and and discontinuous. So are they like a tree or like a ladybug, I'm guessing. <laughs> the great Swiss psychologist Jean Piaget proposed that children's thinking progresses through a series of four discrete stages. By stages, he meant periods during which children reason similarly about many superficially different problems with the stages occurring in a fixed order and thinking with different stages differing in fundamental ways. The four stages that Piaget hypothesized were the sensory motor stage, the pre-operational reasoning stage, the concrete operational reasoning stage, and the formal operational reasoning stage. During the sensor motor stage, children's thinking is largely realized through their perceptions of the world and their physical interactions with it. Their mental representations are very limited. Consider Piaget's object permanence task, which is one of his most famous problems. If an infant younger than nine months of age is playing with a favorite toy and another person removes the toy from view, for example, by putting it under an opaque cover and not letting the infant immediately reach for it, the infant is very likely to make no effort to retrieve it and show no emotional distress. This is not due to their being uninterested in the toy or unable to reach for it. If the same toy is put under a clear cover, infants below nine months readily retrieve it. 
Instead, Piaget claims that infants less than nine months do not understand that objects continue to exist even when out of sight. During the pre-operational stage, according to Piaget, children can solve not only this simple problem, which they actually can solve after nine months, but show a wide variety of other symbolic representation capabilities, such as those involved in drawing and using language. However, such two to seven-year-olds tend to focus on a single dimension, even when solving problems would require them to consider multiple dimensions. This is evident in Piaget's conservation problems. For example, if a glass of water is poured into a taller, thinner glass, children below age seven generally say that there is now more water than before. Similarly, if a clay ball is reshaped into a long, thin sausage, they claim that there is now more clay. And if a roll of coins is spread out, they claim there, there are now more coins. In all cases, the children are focusing on one dimension while ignoring the changes in other dimensions, for example, the greater width of the glass and the clay ball. So the sensor motor from birth to two years, intelligence in action, child interacts with environment by manipulating objects, object permanence, and pre-operational reasoning. I am reading a chart here if you're not watching this on YouTube two years to six to seven years, thinking dominated by perception, but child becomes more capable of symbolic functioning, conservation problem, language development occurs. These were Piaget's sensor motor and pre-operational reasoning stages. Children overcome this tendency to focus on a single dimension during the concrete operation stage, and think logically in most situations. However, according to Piaget, they still cannot think in systematic scientific ways, even when such thinking would be useful. Thus, if asked to find out which variables influence the period that a pendulum takes to complete its arc, and given weights that they can attach to strings in order to do experiments with the pendulum to find out, most children younger than age 12 perform bias experiments from which no conclusion can be drawn, and then conclude that whatever they originally believed is correct. For example, if a boy believes that weight was the only variable that mattered, he might put the heaviest weight on the shortest string and push it the hardest, and then conclude that just as he thought, weight is the only variable that matters. Finally, in the formal operations period, children attain the reasoning power of mature adults, which allows them to solve the pendulum problem and a wide range of other problems. However, this formal operation stage tends not to occur without exposure to formal education in scientific reasoning and appears to be largely or completely absent from some societies that do not provide this type of education. Although Piaget's theory has been very influential, it has not undergone, it has not gone unchallenged. Many more recent researchers have obtained findings indicating that cognitive development is considerably more continuous than Piaget claimed. For example, Diamond in 1985 found that on the object permanence task described above, infants show earlier knowledge if the waiting period is shorter. 
At age six months, they retrieve the hidden object if the wait is no longer than two seconds. At seven months, they retrieve it if the wait is no longer than four seconds, and so on. Even earlier, at three or four months, infants show surprise in the form of longer-looking times if objects suddenly appear to vanish with no obvious cause. Similarly, children's specific experiences can greatly influence when developmental changes occur. Children of pottery makers in Mexican villages, for example, know that reshaping clay does not change the amount of clay at a much younger age than children who do not have similar experiences. So this is PSJ's concrete and formal operation stages, where concrete is 67 to 11 to 12 years. Logical reasoning only applies to objects that are real or can be seen. And formal operational, 11 to 12 years to lifetime. Individual can think logically about potential events or abstract ideas. Advanced reasoning. So, is cognitive development fundamentally continuous or fundamentally discontinuous? A reasonable answer seems to be, it depends on how you look at it and how often you look. For example, under relatively facilitated circumstances, infants show early forms of object permanence by three or four months, and they gradually extend the range of time for which they can remember hidden objects as they grow older. However, on Piaget's original object permanence task, infants do quite quickly change toward the end of the first year from not reaching for hidden toys to reaching for them, even after they've experienced a substantial delay before being allowed to reach. Thus, the debate between those who emphasize discontinuous stage-like changes in cognitive development and those who emphasize gradual continuous changes remains a lively one. Applications to education. Understanding how children think and learn has proven useful for improving education. One example comes from the area of reading. Cognitive development research has shown that phonemic awareness, that is, awareness of the component sound within words, is a crucial skill in learning to read. To measure awareness of the component sound within words, researchers ask children to decide whether two words rhyme, to decide whether the word starts with the same sound, to identify the component sound within words, and to indicate what would be left if a given sound were removed from a word. Kindergartners' performance on these tasks is the strongest predictor of reading achievement in third and fourth grade, even stronger than IQ or social class background. Moreover, teaching these skills to randomly chosen four and five-year-olds results in their being better readers years later. Another educational application of cognitive development research involves the area of mathematics. Even before they enter kindergarten, the mathematical knowledge of children from low-income backgrounds lags far behind that of children from more affluent backgrounds. Romani and Siegler in 2008 hypothesized that this difference is due to the children in middle and upper income families engaging more frequently in numerical activities, for example, playing numerical board games such as shoots and ladders. Shoots and ladders is a game with a number in each square. Children start at the number one and spin a spinner or throw a dice to determine how far to move their token. Playing this game seemed likely to teach children about numbers because in it, 
larger numbers are associated with greater values on a variety of dimensions. In particular, the higher the number that a children's token reaches, the greater the distance the token will have traveled from the starting point. The greater the number of physical movements the child will have made in moving the token from one square to another. The greater the number of number words the child will have said and heard and the more time will have passed since the beginning of the game. These spatial, kinesthetic, verbal, and time-based cues provides a broad-based multi-sensory foundation for knowledge of numerical magnitudes, the sizes of numbers, a type of knowledge that is closely related to mathematics, achievement tests, scores. Playing this numerical board game for roughly one hour distributed over a two-week period improved low-income children's knowledge of numerical magnitudes, ability to read printed numbers, and skill at learning novel arithmetic problems. The gains lasted for months after the game playing experience. An advantage of this type of educational intervention is that it has minimal, if any, cost. A parent could just draw a game on a piece of paper. Understanding of cognitive development is advancing on many different fronts. One exciting area is linking changes in brain activity to changes in children's thinking. Although many people believe that brain maturation is something that occurs before birth, the brain actually continues to change in large ways for many years thereafter. For example, a part of the brain called the prefrontal cortex, which is located at the front of the brain, is particularly involved with planning and flexible problem solving, continues to develop throughout adolescence. Such new research domains, as well as enduring issues such as nature and nurture, continuity and discontinuity, and how to apply cognitive development research to education ensure that cognitive development will continue to be an exciting area of research in the coming years. In conclusion, research into cognitive development has shown us that minds don't just form according to a uniform blueprint or innate intellect, but through a combination of influencing factors. For instance, if we want our kids to have a strong grasp of language, we could concentrate on the phonemic awareness early on. If we want them to be good at math and science, we can engage them in numerical games and activities early on. Perhaps most importantly, we no longer think of brains as empty vessels waiting to be filled up with knowledge, but as adaptable organs that develop all the way through early adulthood. Well, that is absolutely fascinating how we literally have these tiny humans that can be molded and nurtured even through any circumstance to succeed just like a ball of clay, right? I'm wishing you a wonderful day and I am so excited we've made it this far in the course. And maybe you're just interested in this topic because I know I am and this is going to be fantastic material for my book. Well, if you like the show, share it with someone you know and hey, hit that subscribe button. You don't want to miss the next chapter because we're here to help each other out. We're here to inform ourselves and to gain that knowledge. And we're here to live a more inspired life.